Well, this morning I'm in the fifth week of a sermon series that I've entitled The Practical Gospel. There's the graphic right there. The Practical Gospel is all about learning to put into practice what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, where he told the Philippians this. He said, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Work out the implications of your salvation. Not work for your salvation because no one on their own good works can make themselves right with God. But he says, now that you have been saved, now that you've been brought into a relationship with God, work out the implications of your salvation into every, every area of your life. And that's what this sermon series has been about, looking at specific areas of our life. We looked at the gospel and your love life, the gospel and parenting and family, the gospel and work, the gospel and money. And today is going to be all about the gospel and personal growth. So I've been using a summary statement for the gospel to kind of guide us as we go through this series. And I'm using this. Let me read it for you. We are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to God's will, trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. There's a past, present, and future dynamic to that, that we have been saved and justified by grace. We are learning to live as new creations according to God's will. And we're trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. So I'm going to use those three past, present, and future dimensions to help us understand the unique resources that the gospel gives us when it comes to personal growth. And it's going to help you this morning if you can, in your own mind, get specific, right? If there's Areas in your life where you know this is where I'm really trying to grow, whether there's maybe addictions you're trying to overcome or habits you're trying to build, challenges that you're dealing with and struggling to figure out how to overcome. Maybe there's fears and anxieties that have held you back for years and you can't figure out quite how to get past them. Whatever it might be, uh, I just want to encourage you this morning to think specifically so that while we go through this, you can be applying what I'm saying to whatever your specific challenges are. And maybe by the end of today, who knows, we'll all be free of those things and become the men and women that God's created us to be. At least, hopefully, we'll be a step closer. So let me start with the uh, past I mentioned there. We are sinners who've been saved and justified by grace. Again, this is, you know, the whole self-help industry is like a billion-dollar industry, and so I'm not trying to boil down everything that's ever been written. But I do want to talk about what are the unique resources that the gospel gives us when it comes to our own personal growth. So... What difference does it make that we are sinners who are saved and justified by grace? And what this means, in case you're not sure what I'm even saying here, is that the Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all are separated from a holy God by our sin, by our rebellion. We've fallen short, and we deserve eternal separation from God. But God in his love for us did not leave us there, but sent his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life we could not live, to die a sacrificial death on the cross in our place, and to rise again from the dead, to conquer sin and death, to make a way for us to be right with him. And that's the way that we're right with him. It's by grace, a gift of God that we did not deserve. As it says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And that word justified means that we're declared not guilty before a holy God. That even though we've sinned and fallen short, because of Jesus taking the penalty we deserve, when God looks at us, he sees us as perfect 
He sees us the way he sees his son, Jesus. So what difference does that make when it comes to our personal growth? The first is this, that our self-worth does not depend upon our performance, but has been firmly established by Jesus' death for us. Our self-worth does not depend upon how we're doing when overcoming our addictions and meeting the challenges of our life and how we're doing with overcoming the fears and anxieties that hold us back. Whether we're having a good day or a bad day doesn't change our self-worth because it's not about our performance. It's established by Jesus' death for us. This past summer, maybe some of you heard there was a uh, baseball card Mickey Mantle rookie card that sold for, anyone know how much it sold for? $12.6 million. Somebody spent $12.6 million for a baseball card. Why was it worth so much? Is it because the player was so great? Is it because it's such a rare card in such great condition? Ultimately, the reason that this card was worth $12.6 million is because someone was willing to pay $12.6 million for it. Where does your value, your worth come from? How much is someone worth, someone willing to pay for you? How much was God willing to pay for you? God saw your value as that much that he was willing to pay his son, his son's life for you. That is how worthy you are. That is how much God loves you. That's how, what, where your self-worth is found. Not in your performance and how much he was willing to pay for you. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you know your value? How do you know you're worth anything? Is it because of your performance, how you're doing whether you have a good day or a bad day, whether you're overcoming the fears and anxieties and challenges and addictions, or whether you're being defeated by them, your self-worth, your value is found here. When you are at your worst, Christ died for you. That God who knows everything, who knows all the disgusting, yucky things in your heart, sees it all, loved you so much that he gave his life for you. Your worth has been firmly established. The verdict is in. You are loved. You are lovable. You are worthy of love. Your self-worth does not depend on your performance. Whether or not you're living up to the goals you've set for yourself, whether or not you're overcoming your fears and anxieties, whether or not you're struggling with addictions or have mastered them. Again, this is how Paul put it in Romans 3, 20 to 24. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, he's saying there's a way to be right with God that doesn't depend on your performance. He says, continuing, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, what makes you right with God? What makes you worthy? What makes you reach a place where you could earn heaven or the favor of God? It's not your performance. It's not how you're doing and measuring up to his law or any law or any standard. 
There's a way to be right with God that does not depend upon your performance. It's found in faith in Jesus Christ, he says. And then we can say along with Paul in Romans 8, 1 through 2, therefore there is now no condemnation. Everyone say it with me, no condemnation. Ready? No condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Your self-worth, your value does not depend upon your performance. It has been firmly established by Jesus' death for you. And now there is no condemnation. It does not matter if you gave into your addiction this morning. It does not matter if the fears and anxieties still get you down. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're failing as a mother, as a husband, as an employee. It does not matter. Your self-worth is not tied to those things anymore. Why do you think this is so critical? Why am I starting here when it comes to understanding the unique resources of the gospel when it comes to personal growth? Why start there? I mean, what happens when your self-worth is tied to your performance in whatever area it may be? What happens to you when your self-worth is so tied in with your performance? Some days maybe you end up proud because, you know what, I'm doing well today. I've been doing well for a week. I'm doing really well now. And you wind up inflated and proud. Or, on the other hand, you're doing so badly that you wind up in despair. And I'm such a terrible person. I'm such a failure as a human being because I can't seem to overcome this struggle. Your self-worth rises and falls on the basis of your performance to pride or to despair. I know that when I've fallen short of my own standards, my own goals, or when I've fallen short of the standards of others, I have to remind myself of this. I have to remind myself of the gospel, of who I am in Jesus Christ, so that I don't base my self-worth on what other people say of me or what I think of myself. The gospel sets us free from that performance wave, that roller coaster, that my self-worth is found in him and who he says I am not in my performance. Do you understand just how much of your life is controlled by fear or by pride? Have you really stopped and thought about it? How much of your life is controlled by your fear of rejection or your fear of failure or your fear of abandonment, your fear that you're you're worthless or your fear of having a meaningless life? How much of our Life, our actions, the decisions we make are driven by that that fear or by pride, a desire to be better than someone else or appear better than someone else. The gospel sets us free from that. We don't need to live out of our fear, out of our pride. There's a better way that we're going to get to. So that's the first thing I need to tell you, that the unique resource of the gospel for our personal growth is this that our self-worth doesn't depend on our performance. It's firmly established in Jesus' death for us. Second thing is this. The gospel frees us from justifying ourselves so that we can be honest about our need for improvement. That justifying ourselves. Maybe you're familiar with that phrase. It's just kind of a way of making ourselves right, making ourselves righteous, making ourselves, convincing ourselves or others that we're worthy, that that we've cleared the bar maybe and if I don't know the gospel if I don't believe that my self-worth doesn't depend on my performance then I'm going to have to convince myself somehow that I'm a good person somehow I got to convince myself that I'm a worthy person 
And more than likely, I'm going to have to set the bar low enough that I can clear it. You know, I don't cheat on my taxes. I, I'm faithful to my spouse. Or, you know, I try to give to people in need. I try, I try to be a good person. And so I set the bar at a level where I can clear it and feel good about myself. But if I truly believe the gospel, that my self-worth doesn't depend on my performance, you know what that means? I can be completely and painfully honest about myself. I don't have to be afraid of all the evil and yuckiness that resides within. I can be honest about my mixed motives. I can be honest about my self-centeredness. I can be honest that my motivations are not always pure and clean. I can be honest about it because it doesn't mean that I'm somehow a terrible person. It means the same. My self-worth is not a matter of performance, so I can be honest about myself. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount and really read it, you see that Jesus kind of keeps raising the bar, right? Hey, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even look lustfully at a woman or you've committed adultery in your heart. You've heard it was said, don't murder. I tell you, even if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. He keeps raising the bar so that all of the people who you know, have set the bar here and said, well, you know, I've never killed anyone. I've never committed adultery. He raises it to say, no, you don't measure up. He ends Matthew 5 with these words, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In case it wasn't clear what he was trying to do here. That's the bar, the perfection of God. How are you doing? If I truly believe the gospel, you know what that means? I can be honest. I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to pretend I'm better than I am. I can be completely honest knowing that it, it, it doesn't change the fact that, yeah, I'm a sinner, saved by grace. That even the best parts of me are stained by sin and self-centeredness. Even when I'm worshiping, there can be a desire for others to look at me. Even when I'm praying or preaching, there can be a desire for self-glory, not just a pure desire to give him glory. Even in my most holy moments, it's still stained with this self-centeredness that I can't get rid of. How much of the things that I do and the motivation is out of a desire for self-glory or pride, all kinds of things that, that maybe I was afraid to admit to myself, but now I can admit because my self-worth doesn't depend on my performance. That I'm much worse off than I dare to admit, but at the same time, I'm more loved than I could ever dare believe. And so I can be honest about myself, and you know what that also means? That I can receive your honesty as well. Anyone get defensive when someone points out their uh, shortcomings? When someone criticizes you, you, anyone in here get defensive about that? Try to justify yourself, try to defend yourself. I'm not as bad as they say I am. It's really them. If it wasn't for them, I'd be fine. Again, this is the beauty of the gospel, is that it frees me up to be honest with myself and to receive honest feedback from other people without having to get defensive because it's not about my pride anymore, you know? It's not where I'm finding my self-worth. It's in him and what, who he says I am, that he died for me. So we can say along with the psalmist, Psalm 139, 23 to 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. 
See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the unique resource of the gospel, that the more that you find your identity and self-worth in who he says you, you are in his death for you and not in your performance, the more it frees you up to be honest, painfully honest with yourself and to receive the criticism and feedback of others without getting defensive, without justifying yourself. This is the one, of, one of the areas I've seen myself grow in, that I can receive feedback and say, instead of getting defensive, say, yeah, you don't even know the half of it, right? You don't even, you don't even know the whole story. There's so much more that I could tell you about how I've fallen short of the man that I want to be as the man that God has called me to be. But you know what? That's not where my self-worth is found. That's not where my value is found. So the third thing is this. The third resource is this, that God's grace motivates us towards godliness. It seems counterintuitive that if his grace is that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but he's given us his love and his favor, even though we're sinners... The fear is that the more you preach grace, the more people are going to see it as a license to sin and say, well, if God just accepts me as I am because of Jesus, then what's the motivation to try to live for him? Why don't I just go and live however I please because God's going to forgive me, right? And Paul puts it this way in Titus 2, 11 to 14, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Hear that? He's saying the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, to be eager to do what is good. So how does that fit together? If your fear is that, you know what, if we just preach grace, that people are just going to say, well, I can just live however I want because God's going to forgive me. And Paul says, no, if you truly understand God's grace, that is going to be the motivation you need to live for him and to live and to grow and to desire him and to desire godliness. Think about it. Again, the more honest you are with yourself, the more that you can just look at yourself and realize how full of sin and wickedness you really are, the greater you see the gap is between this is who I am and this is the man I want to be or the woman I want to be or the person God wants me to be. The more you see that gap, the greater you see that gap is, what does that do? The, that, all it does is magnify the grace of God. I mean, when I first became a Christian, I thought it was more that God had you know, chosen me for his team, so to speak, right? Isn't God lucky to have me on his team? And then the more I got to know myself, the more I was honest with myself, the more I realized that, wow, look at what he saved me from. Look at his great love and grace over me. He saved me despite myself, in spite of my sin. And the more that I have gotten to know God, the greater that gap becomes between the person I am and the person that God has created me to be, what he deserves And the greater that gap becomes, the more magnificent his grace and his love and the sacrifice that Jesus made for me becomes. And you know what that does? It changes my heart. 
I want to bring him glory in my life. I want to honor him, the one who gave his life for me when I didn't deserve it, the one who saved me, the one who continually forgives me and shows me grace and mercy every day. I want to live for him. I want to bring him as much glory as I can through my life. The grace of God teaches me to say no to ungodliness. I don't want that anymore. I don't want the things that don't glorify you anymore. I want to bring you glory, God. I want to live for you. Those things are just going to bring me death and bring other people death and suffering. Why give myself to those things anymore? Do you see how it's, it's not fear of punishment that teaches us to say no to ungodliness? The fear of hell. It's not guilt that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's the grace of God. It's the love of God. Rightly understood. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live for him. That is the beauty of the gospel, that it changes our motivation. That we live now in this place where, you know what? God has said, you are forgiven. Past, present, and future. And even though that means that I could go out and do something terrible today, I don't want to anymore. Because my motivation has changed. I want to live for him. I want to give my life to the one who gave his life for me. I want to bring him the glory that he deserves. God's grace motivates us towards godliness. We're sinners who've been saved and justified by grace. Take this to heart, please, that your self-worth doesn't depend on your performance. Whether you're achieving your goals or not, whether you're overcoming your addictions or not, it doesn't change your self-worth. That's been sealed at the cross. And so you can be honest with yourself. You can let others be honest with you without having to defend yourself or justify yourself. And the more you see what he did to overcome that gap, to bring you to him, the more it will motivate you towards godliness. Second part is this. We're learning to live as new creations according to God's will. Don't worry, that was the longest part of this sermon. When we repent of our sins and come to faith in Jesus, God adopts us into, our fam- into his family. He gives us his Holy Spirit. We become new creations in Christ. We no longer live for the things we once lived for, but we're being renewed in our minds to live for him. What does that mean for us now and when it comes to our personal growth? The first is this, that the Spirit gives us a desire to be like Jesus. This is kind of segueing off of the last thing I said, that his Holy Spirit gives us a new desire, a new heart to live for him. Listen to how Paul put it in Philippians 3, 7 to 12. Whatever was to my profit... I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. This is Paul who used to live as a Pharisee, as a religious man, trying to earn his salvation. And now he says, everything that I once lived for is rubbish, it's garbage compared to Knowing Christ, that is my motivation now. I want to know him. I want to live like him. I want to be like him. 
And I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm pressing on. The Holy Spirit, when we come to faith in him, puts a new heart in us, a new desire. Now, let's be honest. The challenging thing about that is that there's competing desires within us. It's not just all like one-track mind after Jesus now, right? The sinful nature is still in there. The heart that the Spirit has given us, that desires him, is at war with our own flesh, our own self-centered sinful nature. But as we learn to live as new creations, our desire becomes more and more to be like Jesus. 2 Corinthians three seventeen to 18 says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we devote ourselves to knowing him more, to prayer, to being with him in prayer, we begin to reflect him more, it says. As we spend our time with our faces towards Jesus, getting to know who he is and living like him, we become more like him. We become transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. So the Spirit gives us a desire to be like Jesus. And the second thing is this, that we look for the idol under every sin and replace it with Jesus. Because again, Along with this desire to be like Jesus and to know him is this sinful, self-centered desire for everything but Jesus. And those two competing desires are at war within us. Romans seven eighteen to 23, Paul puts this so well. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. Okay, this is the same guy who was just saying, I want to know Christ. I want to press on and know him. Same guy is now saying this. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Love his honesty here, don't you? It's just, on the one hand, he is saying, you know what, I want to know Christ. I want to live for him. Everything else is rubbish compared to him. And then on the other hand, he's saying, but every time I'm going after him, my sin is right there with me. And it's just this constant battle. And I want to do good, but the evil that I don't want to do, I keep doing I keep falling short. I keep struggling. I keep failing. Thank God that my self-worth is not found in my performance because I keep struggling. And trying harder is not enough, right? Just trying harder just never seems to work. The answer is not just stop it, right? Just stop sinning. Here's the thing. The Bible talks about idolatry. Idolatry is when you look to something other than God for your self-worth, for your satisfaction, for your life, for your joy. That's idolatry. It's not just statues, but it's looking to anything other than God to save you, to fulfill you. And underneath every sin that we struggle with is idolatry, that there's something else besides God that we are looking to to satisfy us 
to bring us life, to bring us peace, to bring us comfort. And let's dig a little deeper now. Underneath every idol is something that you don't believe about God. Something that you don't believe. Just think with me as we kind of go to a deeper level here, right? You struggle with a sin, but underneath that sin is idolatry, that you're looking to something else to give you life, to give you peace, to give you satisfaction. You're not looking to God for those things. You're looking to something of this world. Why are you looking to something of this world? Because there's something about God that you don't believe. Your heart has not yet truly believed. You don't truly believe that in him is found life to the full. You don't truly believe that in him is found a peace that passes understanding. You don't truly believe that in him your self-worth is settled, that you are not a failure, you're not rejected, you are loved, you are accepted. Because your heart still struggles to believe those things, you're looking to something or someone else to give you those things that only God can give you. You're looking to someone else for that acceptance. You're looking to something else for that fulfillment, for that joy. Thomas Chalmers put it this way. I love this. He said, no one changes a habit just by trying. Oh, I shouldn't be like that. The only way to dispossess an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, this is why we start with the gospel. This is why the power is found in the gospel. It's not just found in trying harder to overcome sin in your life. It starts with the gospel, with recognizing that Jesus died for you, his love for you, the gap between who you are and who he is and what Jesus has done to close that gap, to cover that gap, that you are now perfect in his sight, that you belong to a father who loves you. You're adopted. You have his Holy Spirit. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You're loved. And the more that you understand that, the more your desires will be for him. And the more your desires for him, the less your desire will be for the things of this world. The expulsive power of a new affection. The sin that you're struggling with, the thing that is, that you, that's just the challenge you can't seem to overcome, underneath that, there's idolatry. There's something you're looking to in this world to give you what only God can give you. And underneath that idolatry is something that you're not believing about God. So again, go back to the gospel. Go back. Let your heart believe who he says you are, what he has done for you, until your heart is overcome with love for him, gratitude for him, a desire to bring him glory, a desire to live for him. That's the expulsive power of a new affection. So if it's, you just can't seem to overcome that melancholy and sadness and depression, then meditate on the joy found in the gospel the joy found in what he has done for you and the joy of what's ahead for you. If it's the fear of what others think of you, that you just can't seem to get over that fear of others that causes you to people please instead of living for God. Again, remember the approval you have in God. And if God is for you, who can be against you? That he will never reject you or let you go. If it's an addiction that you can't seem to shake, can't seem to overcome, Remember that Jesus said, I have come that you might have life to the full. 
The enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. Do you believe that he has come to give you life to the fullest? If it's this anxiety that you can't seem to shake, again, God loves you. He gave his son for you. He will give you everything you need. Whatever it may be, whatever you might be struggling with, you're looking to something other than God to give you what only God can give you. So go back to the gospel. Go back to him, to who he says that he is, that you are, the promises of the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remember it. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Do you understand what he's saying there? You know what he's saying. All the voices in your head that just keep telling you negative things and things that are not true and the lying to you and all of that that just pull you away from God. And he's saying what you need to do is talk to yourself more often. Remind yourself of the gospel. Preach to yourself the truth of who God is and remind your heart of his promises. It's like when David in the Psalms says, why are you downcast on my soul? Put your hope in God. He's talking to himself. Remember who God is and put your hope in him. So we're learning to live as new creations. The Spirit gives us a desire to be like Jesus. We look for the idol under every sin, replace it with Jesus, and then we encourage others to speak the truth and love to us. I alluded to this earlier, that when you know that your self-worth is not a matter of your performance, then you don't need to be afraid of the feedback of others. You don't need to be defensive when people criticize you. You don't need to justify yourself when someone points out your shortcomings. Because if you know that you're a sinner saved by grace and you know the gap between who you are and who God says that you are, then you're not surprised when someone comes to you and says, you know what, that was really hurtful, what you just said. You know what, you're not trying as hard as you need to. Whatever it is they might say to you. We're not surprised because we know the truth about ourselves. Yeah, I am a sinner. I do need a savior. I am going to hurt people. Not that I want to, but because I fall short of God's glory. In Ephesians 4.15, Paul tells us, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. How do we grow up? By speaking the truth in love to each other. That means that you're not just going to grow by reading books. I'm sorry. Some of you prefer that method, right? I'm just going to lock myself away and read a lot of books, and then I'm going to grow into godliness. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. That we grow in community. We grow with other people as they speak the truth and love to us. We grow as people love us enough to point out things that we need to hear, to challenge us on things that we are blind to, to remind us of the truth of God and his promises, and who he is, and the person God has called us to be. It's Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You need each other. You need other people. For some of you, that's going to take the form maybe of a community group that you get involved in where people know you and can speak in your lives. For other people, maybe it's just going to be one-on-one friendships that you have with people that you trust, and you give permission to them to speak in your life. For some of you, maybe a mentor, a coach, a pastor, someone who you trust who maybe is a little further down the road than you and can 
help you see where your actions are not lining up with what God has called you to and can encourage and challenge you to repentance and to faith. You need each other. You need to give permission to others to speak into your life if you want to grow. It's not going to happen by just locking yourself in a room and reading a lot of books, listening to podcasts and things like that. You're going to grow in community as people lovingly speak the truth to you. Last thing I want to say is this. There's only one, one point for the last section that we're trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future, and that is this, that we trust that God will complete the good work he has begun in us. That comes from Philippians 1, 3 through 6, where Paul writes this, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Sometimes I can get discouraged when I look at the fact that the things I'm struggling with now are the same things I was struggling with when I was 20, 25. And I look back at my life and sometimes I say, have I made any progress at all? We have a men's group on Wednesday night called Fight Club and I remember the first Fight Club we had 11 years ago where I I talked about my struggles with prioritizing things and planning ahead and all of those things and here I am 11, you know, how many, 11 years later, and I'm still saying the same things in there. And I'm struggling. It's a still the same struggle, the same challenge. And it's not just that I need better systems. There is idolatry there. There's things I'm not believing about God that cause me to run to idols instead of running to him. But I'm thankful that one day, someday, God will perfect us. Someday when we are with him, all that sin, all the struggle, all of it will fade away and we will be perfected in his presence. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. All of us who have struggled mightily this side of heaven to overcome all the addictions and the struggles, on that day we will be free from them. On that day we will be perfected. In the meantime, until that day comes, can I encourage you? Get back to the gospel Meditate on who he says you are so that you do not find your self-worth in your performance. Let the truth of the gospel free you up to be honest about yourself, to receive the criticism and the feedback of others, that it might melt your heart, that it might showcase the gospel of God's grace, that you might love and fall in love with him more and more, that your desire might become more and more for him, to live for him and to bring him glory. Amen.